Uh, we are going to be in Acts chapter 2 tonight. Mr. Kerber was kind enough to print that for you. And uh, while you find that, I'll just set the stage really quickly. Uh, you could call Acts the, uh, the, the Acts of uh, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's very active. You call it Acts of the Apostles because they're very active. You could call it Acts of the Exalted Lord Jesus. A little bit longer. But uh, I think it's pretty clear in chapter 1 that Jesus intends to continue his work. And he does so by his Holy Spirit. So in chapter 1, he departs and goes to the Father. And when he does so, there's 120 witnesses. 120, I mean, that's it. It's like only 120 people. Really, they're part of a movement. And a few days later, Jesus pours out the Spirit in chapter 2. And that day, everything changes. Peter preaches a sermon where there are 3,000 people that come to Jesus. In one day, the church grows 26-fold. That's a good day at work. And um, the, the text tells us here in verse 40, 41 that they were added. That 3,000 were added. And you're like, wow, it's amazing. But you should ask, added to, to what? Added to what? It's clear in the text that Jesus calls them and they individually believe in Jesus. But what we're going to see in our text is when they do so, they're connected to him. They're connected to one another as well. That Jesus is not just gathering individuals. He is making a community, a church, his beloved people. So I'm going to be reading Acts chapter 2, verses 41 to 47. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Okay. I'm going to pray again. It's a matter of habit. Our great Lord, we pray you be kind to bless this word. Be with me in my weakness. Not as prepared as I'd like to be. Be with us in our weakness. Be kind, Lord. Speak to us. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Uh, I, I don't usually, actually I'm pretty sure I've never, ever, in all my years of preaching, asked this question in a sermon. But I'm going to ask it. Who likes romantic comedies? Show of hands. <laughs> romantic comedies. Uh, and now another question. Uh, if this was a double blind test, like no one knew you were raising your hand, how many of you would raise your hand? Do you like romantic comedies? There's a couple more extra honest people. That's good. Okay, thanks. Well, about 20 years ago, I watched like one of the three or four romantic comedies I've ever watched in my life. Uh, I was snowed in and stranded. I didn't feel like I had much of a choice. And it was 1998. And uh, the movie was You've Got Mail. So uh, I shared this with my students, and everyone seemed to know it. Couldn't believe it. I guess this is a bit of a classic. 
Anyway, at uh, the center of the story is a woman named Kathleen Kelly, played by Meg Ryan, owner of a little cute family-owned bookstore called The Shop Around the Corner. And uh, when we meet her in the movie, she's being put out of business by the uh, much larger, much better organized uh, mega bookstore, Fox Books. Little did they know Amazon would crush them both. But uh, Kathleen, despite the failure of her family business, it was her mom's shop before her, is nevertheless not destroyed because she's at the same moment enjoying an online romance of sorts, you know. Before life got more complicated with our phones and uh, all the possibilities, you could do a much more uh, kinder, gentler online romance. Uh, this was back when you started your computer and it started up and it sounded like a lawnmower. And then you had an icon of like a, a mailbox and you would click it and it would say, you've got mail. And she was in this you know, chat room for 30-year-olds and uh, she was communicating with some guy named New York 152. They really enjoyed one another, and uh, they finally decided to meet at a coffee shop. And she's sitting at a table, waiting anxiously, trying to look cool. She's got a, a book and a flower. When in walks Joe Fox, you know, the competitor, the guy that owns the big mega bookstore, the guy she hates. Now, Joe Fox immediately recognizes what's happened. This is the woman he's been talking to, and this is the woman he's put out of business. This woman hates me, but I really enjoy talking to her. I don't know how this is going to go. So he thinks about leaving. She sees him and immediately hides. She doesn't want anything to do with him. He approaches and says, can I sit? She's like, no, not at all. She's still expecting Mr. New York 152 to come. Well, he sits down anyway and starts tries to start a conversation. And he points to the book. And she's like, you've never read it, I'm sure. And he says something like, you might be surprised what you'd learn about me if you got to know me. And she replies, I know exactly what I'd find out. That instead of a brain, a cash register, instead of a heart, a bottom line, and uh, it sort of gets worse from there. Uh, she's still expecting New York 152, the, the man of her dreams, to walk in any minute now. So she begs him to leave. And he obliges. He stands up and sits directly behind her at another table. He, he knows no one else is coming, you know. And uh, they can't help but continue to fight. He comes back and sits down. They have another exchange. It's, it's really pretty ugly. And uh, he finally asks, when this guy comes, are you going to be mean to him too? And she says, I will not, because he's completely unlike you. Kind and funny, a wonderful sense of humor, not a cruel or careless bone in his body. But you, Joe Fox, no one will ever remember you. You are nothing but a suit. Now, Fox is sit there and he's taking all this pretty placidly. But you can tell here that he's wounded. And he pays his bill and says, that's my cue. And he stands and leaves. Why do I tell you this story? That's a weird way to start a sermon, Derek. Well, I like this because I think... This is a wonderful illustration that you can come face to face with what you really want and fail to recognize it. Moreover, maybe even despise it and dismiss it. And I think it's altogether possible that some of you, and certainly many of your peers, who are desperate for community, 
looking for a place where you can be yourself and grow and experience rich, caring friendships. You describe that, I would say, have you ever thought about the church? You would say, oh, the church. It's often the case that we immediately dismiss with disdain the possibility that the church might be what we're looking for. Now, I know it's complicated. I don't know all your stories. There's about as many stories of the church for you as there are people in the room. Some of you have known it and loved it your whole life. Some of you have been deeply hurt. Your families have been hurt. It can be complicated. It can be painful. It can be disappointing. But, but tonight in our text, we're going to see it's, it's sort of unavoidable that if you are to embrace Jesus and his mission, which is going and growing together, you must embrace this community. So, three points tonight. The first one's long. What makes this community different? The next two are short. What's it look like to be devoted and desired? So, different, devoted, and desired. Here we go. What makes this community that Jesus is building different? In verse 42, we, we find this you know, new, quickly growing community devoted, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. And uh, because most of you have probably read this section before, or you're somewhat familiar with the Bible, you read that and you're like, oh, okay, no big deal. Uh, what? Say what? Devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. A few weeks ago, they almost quit. A few months ago, they had no clue what was going on. At Jesus' death, they all fled. And now they're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. If it said Moses and the prophets, okay. If it said maybe even Jesus' teaching, you might be, that makes sense. The apostles' teaching, those guys devoted to the apostles' teaching. How did this happen? Is this really supposed to be this way? But we need to remember who the apostles are, or at least in Jesus' eyes, who the apostles are. Personally selected by Jesus himself. Chosen to be with him and do what he did. They were, in the, they were in the rabbinic school of Jesus. Go with me everywhere I go and learn from me. And as he taught, they listened. They were also eyewitnesses of his resurrection. So much so that John, the apostle, right in 1 John, we were with him. We heard him. We saw him. We touched him. It's hard to believe, but it was real. We were there the whole time. And uh, it was to these apostles that Jesus, before he left, in the book of John, over and over in chapters 14 through 16, promised to get to the Spirit. The Spirit's going to come. When he comes, he's going to remind you of everything I've ever taught you. He's going to give you words. In other words, this teaching ministry that they're doing now, Jesus authorized it. And is it to clear away any skepticism about what's going on here? It's pretty clear in verse 43 that with all these wonders and signs being done through the apostles, that Jesus is authenticating their work. Jesus is at work through them, miraculously, authenticating that he has authorized them to do this. In other words, when the apostles are teaching, it is God speaking. That's what we're supposed to understand here. This is God's reliable word through the mouth of the apostles. So what makes this community different? We hear God's word. That's one thing that makes the church different. When we gather around the scriptures, God speaks 
and we here. Now, it's perhaps altogether possible that you're thinking, yeah, I know that, thanks. Uh, and so maybe that's not your hang-up, that Scripture is maybe not reliable. Maybe your hang-up is it's not relevant to your life. Why? I don't need it. Uh, why would I listen to this really old book? And Paul Miller points out uh, in one of his books that we all have a script. I'm going to read a little bit what he wrote here. Some think we've moved beyond the primitive belief in sacred writings, but many of us have some kind of scripture or guide we follow. In the confusion of life, people are looking for a word of authority, for information that will bring clarity and direction. Some watch the news, some read the newspaper, some check their horoscopes. University professors refer to the literature almost with reverence. Psychologists look to Freud. Revolutionaries look to Marx. Millions of Americans look to Oprah. We search for a word that will order the chaos of life, a word that will make sense of our brokenness. Each of us is shaped by a script, whether it's a book, a movie, or a therapist. I'm sort of surprised you didn't say, or your parents. I mean, even like 20 or 30 years later, some of you are still being shaped by your parents' expectations or something they said to you. The search for words of certainty is so pervasive, one suspect is pre-programmed. Einstein himself reflected that human beings dance to a mysterious tune intoned in the distance by an invisible player. It's pretty clear if you read through Scripture that Jesus had a script, that he danced to a script. He made it really clear that he did, actually, and that was God's word. And it's pretty clear here that the church is, ha- is to have a script, is to be God's word. We're to hear God's word. That's one thing that makes us different. Another thing that makes the church different is we're to love God's people. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. Now, let's talk about fellowship a little bit. Uh, I happen to work for and with an organization that has the word fellowship in the name. Reformed University Fellowship. And it's really funny. It's just as likely that students will ask me what the word fellowship is as they ask me what the word reformed means. Like, it's a funny word, fellowship. I mean, if you're looking at, if you're looking at me like, everyone knows what fellowship means. No. Well, you know, it's a, it's a funny word. Fellowship. I'm a ship, you're a ship. You're a fellow. I, what's it mean? And... Uh, I think what the text makes clear are two aspects of life together. Uh, The first is one of sharing, in verse 44. They were together and had all things in common. So it's not just a sharing of things, it's a sharing of selves. They shared one another. That's the nature of fellowship. You belong to one another. And in fact, if you go back to that first John passage I referenced earlier, where John's saying, hey, that, that Jesus, that one, the word made flesh that we saw, touched and heard. If you really understand what he was doing, what he was trying to do, this is what John says, basically, I'm paraphrasing now, is bring us into the fellowship that he has with the Father. The Father and Son are in perpetual, eternal fellowship. And God wants to bring us into the joy of that fellowship. In other words, fellowship is our sharing life together, not only with one another, but with Father, Son, and Spirit. You should all be like, your mind should be exploding, because that's amazing. That's what God's intent is, that we share life together, Father, Son, Spirit, and with one another. And it also, therefore, means that we should share sacrificially, if we need to, in a way that looks like caring. 
Verse 45, they sell and distribute their proceeds as all have need. Of course, some people might use this as an argument for uh, the goodness of communism. Uh, don't get my wife started on this one. Uh, those who've suffered, you know, uh, like live in the former Soviet Union, you're going to have a hard time convincing them there's much to go on there. But uh, what's clear in this text, and as you read through the rest of Acts, is this is voluntary, this is sacrificial, this is as they have need. This is based on love, not obligation. And uh, fellowship looks like sharing life together and caring for one another. Well, the third thing that makes this community different is their worship of God. And in verse 47, you know, you get the, the sense that they're praising God. Uh, it says they're praising God. And you can do that individually. You can do that informally. Uh, I suspect that at least some of you here are wired in such a way that I could actually pass you on the street and you might not recognize me. But you might be singing some praise song in your head. That's just the kind of joyful, happy person you are. You might be like that. And uh, your wife would probably be like that. And uh, I'm not like that. Anyway, um, you, know, you, you can do this informally, by yourself, privately. But so much of what's going on in this text regarding worship seems to be more corporate, more formal in nature. Not to say that you can't do it by yourself informally, just you and Jesus. That certainly is true. But the emphasis here is actually the getting together formal aspects of worship. Like, you know, in verse 46, attending the temple together. They didn't have a building. They didn't even have Greenfield Press. But they went to the temple together and participated in some kind of formal worship. In verse 41, you see some of the formal aspects uh, in baptism. The, uh, the, the, the process by which one declares leaving one community and joining another, joining the team of Jesus, putting on the uniform, if you will, and identifying with that body. And the, verse 42, the breaking of bread. Uh, most... Scholars think this involves not only a meal together, but the meal, in the meal, that Jesus instituted before he left and he gave his disciples. So that uh, we're speaking here of the Lord's Supper, the family meal, Jesus spiritually feeding his people with his means of grace. And the reference here to the prayers, uh, that's a very interesting the. He could just say prayers, pray anytime and anywhere. You should, maybe, pray anytime, anywhere. But this sounds pretty formal. The prayers. It sounds a little liturgical. It seems to hint at like a, something like a formal worship service. I think you put all this together and you have some indication of something that looks like church. Like, not just the people, but like the hour. That we're supposed to worship God in this way. And uh, it's really important that we stop for a moment and, and reflect on this and why it's important. And it's pretty simple why it's important. Because this is the way that God has chosen to communicate his love to his people. It's not the only way. He works by a spirit and individual reading and you can praise him wherever you want to. But it's pretty clear that it's his will that we gather together and as God speaks through his word, we hear. And as we meet and love one another, and, and meet Jesus at the table. He feeds us spiritually. Uh, this is the way God has chosen to work, to meet with us and strengthen us. So that's why it's not enough. I tell my students all the time, it's not enough for you to come to RUF. The church is God's plan for you. 
It's not enough for you. Now, this is not just speaking to the choir. This is speaking to the choir director. If you're coming to the Sunday evening service, you're very much sort of in the loop in some ways. But this is why it's not enough for you to stay home and just listen to John Piper or Matt Chandler or Tim Keller or even Matt. Um, it, it, God's will is for, him to, for us to gather with his people uh, because Jesus is with his people in the service through the means of grace in a way that's really special. He speaks, and so we're, we're a learning community. He, he uh, brings us into the fellowship, so we're a loving community. And because he's worthy, we're a worshiping community. In all these ways, he makes our community different. All right, the last two, like I said, pretty short, devoted and then desirable. Devoted. They devoted themselves. That's a funny word, devoted. Not as funny as fellowship. But it's not a word we use a lot, right? I think the only time I use the word devoted is when I'm officiating a wedding. I can't think of any other time I really talk about it. I do get to do that sometimes. Um, You know, you devote themselves to one another. Um, And just as that is reciprocal, as a mutual devoting, that's true here as well. I didn't read these verses earlier, but I'm going to back up to verse 39 for a little, little context so, you know, Peter's preaching, and uh, he says in verse 39, The promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls. With many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. There's some urgency there, right? He's exhorting them. Many words. He's working hard. And uh, you have there a picture of Jesus' desire. To bring people in. Okay, God, I mean, think about what Jesus has already done. He took flesh, he walked among us, he lived, he died, he rose from the dead. I want to say, like, well, you pretty much did everything that could be reasonably expected of you. Well, how about we keep trying? All right, Peter, I'd like you to stand up and preach. And he does, and Peter preaches maybe all day, and 3,000 people believe. And I can imagine Peter sort of saying to God that night in prayer, all right, now what, Jesus? That was great. That's exactly what I want. I want people so much to hear about what I've done for them, how much I love them, that, Peter, I want you to do that, what you just did today. I want you to keep doing that. Okay. I want you to do it like every day for the next 40 years until you die. Okay. That, that is Jesus' desire. That's his devotion. To bring people to himself and to his community. He is utterly committed to saving his people. And you get a little bit of what this looks like, what's at stake, the nature of, of this in verses 40 and 41. They are exiting, you know, fleeing, uh, being saved from this crooked generation and being brought into by baptism uh, uh, this new entrance into Jesus' loving community. And uh, man, sometimes we forget how beautiful this is. We had a baptism this morning, so yeah, it's fresh in your minds. But a couple days ago, there were me and a couple students were uh, hanging out on campus. We're, we're trying to study. And uh, one of them uh, passed me her phone to look at this picture. Now, all three of us have been on the same spring break mission trip for the last two years to this Indian reservation in Washington. So we have some shared experience. But as she passes this picture, uh, I started to get teared up. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I can't look at this right now. So I pass it to the guy to my right who also knows, and he starts to get teared up. And, you know, if you're watching this, you're like, what's wrong with these people? 
But it was a picture of a little girl we know on this reservation being baptized. Now, that might not be a big deal for us because we see baptism all the time. But for most of us, when we see people being baptized, for the most part, they are coming with a loving family, right? And joining a loving family. This girl doesn't have a loving family. But she does now, right? It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And this is Jesus' devotion to his people to bring them to himself. And because this is what Jesus is devoted to, bringing people to himself and to the family, we should be devoted. And they are. They devote themselves to the teaching and to the fellowship. You know, the, the word itself means, means to be extremely loving and loyal. And if this is the way that Jesus communicates his love, communicates his will through the word and through our fellowship and our prayers, then should we not devote ourselves to these things? Now, I don't know all of you, but I imagine at least some of you were thinking, could we pick a different word? Because that word devoted sounds really strong. Maybe even a little fanatical. Maybe, maybe just going a little too far. Says rabid sports fans who will spend hundreds of dollars to sit in the cold and cheer their losing team. Right? Says online gamers who will spend hours a day to claim with others an imaginary victory. And I could go on. Man, we are devoted to all kinds of things in our life. But we're often slow to devote ourselves to the things of the Lord. Uh, a newer Christian, I think this is just one of those proverbial pastor illustrations. Who knows if it ever happened? Doesn't matter. Uh, a newer Christian visited an older Christian that he had met to talk about his dislike for organized religion. He asked if it was okay if he just followed Jesus on his own without actually having to you know, go to church, join a church. The old man didn't say anything. He just simply leaned forward and with tongs took a glowing red hot coal from the fireplace and set it on the hearth. And they sat in silence as it went from bright glowing orange to cool black. The young man had his answer. We are not meant to live alone. If you're a Christian, you are not meant to live apart from Jesus' community. He's devoted to you, and he's devoted to it. Are you? Are you devoted to his community? So, lastly, what's it look like to be part of this community that is desired? Really interesting, wonderful thing that happens here at the end of the text. This community that's devoting itself to the word and sharing life together, going to the temple. They live life in such a way, day by day, verse 46 tells us, breaking bread with glad and joyful hearts. Actually, time out, let me stop. I'm going to say all that again. Day by day, breaking bread together with glad and joyful hearts. I, I feel like this is the opposite of my daily experience and probably most of your daily experience. It's certainly the opposite of my students' daily experience. I read this and said, does this sound like your day? And they're like, no, not at all. I, I work at a very isolated, segregated, I don't mean racially segregated, although it probably is. It's just everyone segregated from everyone. That pit. It's just hard to get together. So how many of you like 
not a raise of hands, but how many of you eat lunch at your cubicle? Right? Uh, there's a sense in which this feels like the way life's supposed to be. Let's get together, share a meal, talk face to face. And uh, so this missions trip I mentioned earlier, man, it is hard, it is hard, it is hard. We traveled all day. Two years ago, I had the stomach bug. JJ probably has now. Uh, on the trip, I never throw up, ever. Everyone else got it and threw up, though. Anyway, uh, like I said, hard trip. Hard, we work hard all day. Dig trenches, split wood. We, we, ex, we dug out the foundation of a building and had students jack it up. We, we teach students how to run chainsaws. This is no joking around. We work hard all day. Then we work with orphaned, neglected children all afternoon. Emotionally heartbreaking, right? And then we fall asleep really early because we're exhausted. And uh, toward the end of the week last year, I asked them, that was sort of an experiment, you know, I wanted to see how they were processing the, processing the trip. Hey guys, if you had to choose, had to choose between a regular day at school or a regular day here for the rest of your life, that was it, Groundhog Day. Okay, you gotta do the same day over and over. Which day would you choose? Which one do you think they chose? The hard, hard day. I mean, it was heartbreaking and hard work, but they were doing it together. Sharing life together over a meal. And even though the work was hard, with glad and joyful hearts. There's a sense in which this feels like the way it's supposed to be, right? And I think we have to fight for it. I think we have to fight for it. We've got to find ways to make it happen. And it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful that uh, the community around them sees it. And, and it's, the text says they find favor in their eyes. People, people want this. Uh, Jesus told them this would happen. You know, the world will see the way you love one another. And they'll realize that I'm behind it. And they may want to get into it. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, all people will know you're my disciples. If you have love for one another. And there are so many people around us, at work, in our families, in our neighborhoods, that want something like this and need to know if it's real, if it's even possible for them. There's a tendency among Christians, I certainly see this in my students, to think they have to curb their devotion in order to be desirable. You understand? I'm really devoted to these things. I'm going to come across like a lunatic. So yeah, maybe I have to be devoted just to sort of hide it. But if we curb our devotion to the things in this text that we're called to devote ourselves to, the apostles' teaching and our fellowship and the prayers, we cut ourselves off from the things that make us desirable. The things we're devoted to are the things by which Jesus communicates his love. It's the things that make us a beautiful community. If we, if we curb those things, we, we cease to be the kind of community that the world needs. The watching world needs not less devotion from us. It needs more. And uh, if you're on the other side of this, maybe you're sitting here tonight saying, oh yeah, I've seen that in the church. 
Um, but bearded dude who I don't know. Uh, that's not me, man. I'm, I just walked in. I don't, I don't know any of this stuff. I don't know that Jesus is real. But I would like a community like this. Um, you know, as, as a visitor to this community, I don't feel like I have the right to say this, but I do. I have the right to say this. You're welcome here. This is true for all of our, all the facets of our church. That uh, you're welcome here, and uh, you're free to bring your questions. You're free to bring your doubts. You're free to ask them and express them. But but for you to really find what you're looking for, the community you're really looking for, you need to do more than just come here. You, you actually got to find the person behind the community. You, you need to meet the one that stands behind it all. The one that draws people close to himself, Jesus. And uh, if you want to talk to someone about that, I'd love to talk to you. Matt would talk to you. Joseph, once he finishes throwing up, he'd love to talk to you. John in the back. Uh, There are people here that would love to do so. So after uh, Kathleen Kelly begs Joe Fox to leave, um, wounds him, like calling him an empty suit, he leaves. But he does not give up. While she continued to pursue this, uh, this dream romance with this anonymous online guy, which of course was Joe Fox, um, he was patiently pursuing her, forgiving her unkind, harsh words, seeking forgiveness for the fact his store put her out, taking care of her when she was sick. When she asked why, he simply said, I want to be your friend. Listening to her all the time talk about this other guy. And all along, giving her the opportunity to figure out that it was actually him she wanted all along. And uh, near the end of the movie, with her still not knowing it's him, uh, still clinging to hope in this guy that stood her up, never showed up, uh, Joe tells her, you know, sometimes I wonder if I wasn't Fox Books and you weren't the little shop around the corner. She sort of nods her head knowing where this is going. He says, uh, if we just met, I'd have asked for your number. And, and now uh, he's got her at full attention. And I would have been able to wait 24 hours before I called you. Noah said, hey, how about some uh, coffee or drinks or dinner or a movie as long as we both shall live like he delivers this super corny line in the best way ever and uh, it's hard to watch it without being like man I don't know what that quality is but I wish I wish I had some of it maybe maybe one or two of you do well anyway movies have changed in 20 years I can't imagine anyone saying that in a movie nowadays but it's wonderful because a couple things he knew he loved her that much, right? He knew he loved her that much. But that's what I want. You and me forever. And he also knew she was still looking somewhere else. And our Lord Jesus is every bit as devoted to us. He knows he wants us. He came and lived for us. Continues to pursue us day after day, even though we're constantly looking somewhere else. Looking for joy in our job, in a different community, all the time looking somewhere else. But he wants to give himself to us. He wants to give himself to his community. He's devoted 
to them for as long as we both shall live. All right, let's pray.